So what we're doing today is um, we're looking at the second part of this short series on um, marks of a healthy church. And I thought what we would look at this morning is uh, the importance of, of the gospel, preaching the gospel. And for that reason, we're going to have a, a reading from uh, the book of Romans, chapter 1, a few verses starting at verse number 13. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Well, I don't think there can be uh, very much doubt at all that one of the key characteristics of any church has to be the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I think if we were falling down on that, then we would be in serious uh, trouble. It's the easiest thing in the world, uh, isn't it, to, be, to become inward-looking, uh, to be introverted, to be taken up with your own kind of worries and concerns and affairs, and to lose this sense of uh, looking out uh, to the needs of others, particularly as a church as well. In addition to that, I think it's, it's very important that we're absolutely clear on what the gospel is. Now, you might think that's a fairly redundant statement, but uh, if you were to go out there, even to other churches, you might be surprised to, to realize the amount of confusion that actually exists as far as what the key, clear message of the gospel actually is. So I think it's important that the clarity of the gospel uh, is emphasized. So there's really just two points I'm, I'm trying to get across today, and that's the first one. I want us to just try and understand again what the gospel means. And then secondly, I'd like us to try and think about what the gospel means for us. That's not to say that um, it means something different from me, to me as what it might mean to you, but I'm trying to get across the idea of the implications of the gospel for us in that sense. So it's the meaning of the gospel and the implications of it. And, of course, we're taking it from these verses here in Romans chapter 1. And here is Paul writing this, this letter to the, the center of the empire um, at that time in the first century, and uh, the gospel of Christ had reached as far as that point. Paul himself had never visited. He, he was planning to visit. Tells us later on in the book that his, his idea is to, to go to Rome and then to go to Spain. Um, he never got to Spain, and the way he pitched up in Rome wasn't the way I don't think he had anticipated because he was under arrest. He arrived as a prisoner, and eventually he was going to lose his life there uh, as he was executed in, in, in Rome itself. The whole of the book is actually about the gospel. This is, this is Paul's calling. 
This is his passion. This is the thing that drives the man. And the whole book kind of lays that all out in a very clear and systematic way. But these few verses that we've got here in front of us that we've read from chapter, uh, chapter 1 are a bit of a microcosm of, of what he believes as far as the gospel and the importance of the gospel that he is so keen to bring to the Roman, the center of the Roman Empire. It fires him up. Um, and what, what I thought we would do this morning is just pick out, first of all, as we think about the meaning of the gospel, we pick out some of the key words that are here just to kind of get a, a clear idea again and just to, to um, make sure that we really grasp the importance of this. So, so let's look at this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, verse number 16. The gospel, you know, if you were to look down the, the first chapter, you'd see that word is used about four times. And in essence, fundamentally, at its heart, the gospel, of course, is, is good news. It's fantastic news. It's a positive message. It is the greatest story that has ever been told. And sometimes, it's, for those of us who are used to it, it's very easy to, to lose the edge of that uh, and to have that kind of sense of exhilaration just kind of fall off and dampen away. But to really appreciate that the best, the best message that ever has fallen on human ears is God's message of salvation. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why it is called good news. And we must never forget that, that fundamentally this is tremendous news. Uh, this week... Uh, the time difference was all off, but we, we got a message on FaceTime from, from Australia. And it was uh, my nephew and his wife and his two wee ones. And uh, there was also, in addition, something flashing up on a screen, which was a, an ultrasound scan, you know. And it was, uh, the message was that uh, a new baby is on its way. And my mind went to a verse uh, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, which says this, you know, just as uh, cold water is good for a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. And that was pretty good news for us. I don't think the country could have been any further, you know, that came to us. A joyful, exciting, refreshing piece of news. And then I thought, because of course I'm preparing for this message, I thought of the gospel. And I thought, you know, a message from a country much further away than Australia. A message that has come from heaven. And if you think of the best news that you have ever had in your life, maybe you've sat in a doctor's surgery, worried about some sort of report that was going to be fed back to you, fearing the worst, but then getting good news that has relieved you. Maybe some exam that you thought you had bombed, and in fact, when the thing comes through, you've passed. So many things that could be good news that you've had. There is, there is no good news that compares at any level to the message of God's salvation. And that's what we have in front of us. And chapter 10 of this book, um, this kind of connects with the studies that we did in Nehemiah a wee while ago. Because he takes a quote there that relates to that time. And he says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that bring good news. Those who are the messengers 
of good news. And of course, that's what happened way back in those times when the news came out that the exile was going to be reversed. And that after 70 years, the people were going to be coming back to Jerusalem, that it was going to be rebuilt again, that people were coming home, that the national identity was going to be regrasped. I mean, it was fantastic news. And the people who were described as having beautiful feet, that's a bit of a misnomer as far as I'm concerned, but, you know, beautiful feet. But the idea is this, that the people who were bringing the message, you know, it was a, it was a beautiful thing to actually give that message to individuals. You know, the long wait is over. The people are coming back home again. Good news from a far country. Another point here about the gospel, it is the one and only gospel, unique gospel. There aren't any other gospels, or if there are, you know, they are not true gospels. Paul says that in the book of Galatians. He says, even if an angel was to come from heaven and preach another gospel to you, and you were dazzled by the sight of this angel, and you were carried away with the eloquence and the whole drama of the sight of the thing, even if that happened, it's not another gospel. It's a false gospel. There is only one gospel. It is the gospel. And it's good for us to just be reminded about these things again. That what we have, this best of all things, is unique. So that's the first word. The second word I thought we would think about is the word power. Uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Not, not just any power but the the power of God. Let's just again remind ourselves that this wonderful message that we preach is extremely powerful. It's not at any level something that's half-baked, apologetic, embarrassing, limp, you know. It's full of vitality and strength. It, uh, It describes the message that in Acts chapter 7, says, turn the world upside down. You know, the preachers came and the folks in the city said, you know, here are the people they've pitched up here in Thessalonica. These are the people who've turned the world upside down with this message. And and that's exactly what it did. The whole place was shaken. And somebody has well said, it didn't really turn the world upside down. It turned the world the right way up because of the effect of, of the power of this. And, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, everything about him was marked marked by power. It says this about him, that he was mighty in word and in deed. Of course, the miracles were powerful. The teaching moved people with the power. He spoke with authority into the lives uh, of of men and and women. There is one miracle and one... um, part of the teaching of Christ that comes from that miracle that I was particularly thinking about here. It's the, it's the one about the paralyzed man, you know, who was let down from the roof by his friends. And uh, obviously, you know, we don't know exactly why the man was paralyzed. You know, maybe he'd had an accident, severed his spinal cord. Maybe he'd had something like uh, TB of the, of the spine. Maybe he had a stroke. We don't, we don't know exactly what happened. But when the Lord spoke to the man, 
He was healed instantaneously. Now, we think about the power of that. So, his spinal cord, you know, was, was instantly connected. All the nerves were reconnected, and, and the function of them immediately was potent and viable. Everything worked straight away. That was the power of the miracle of Christ. But the thing about that miracle, it was, it was, it was making a point. And in fact, what the Lord said at that time is, I'm doing this so that you will know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And he made it very clear that that was the more difficult thing to do, was to forgive somebody's sins rather than heal him. And yet what had happened in the soul of that man, a difficult thing, but happened instantaneously because of the power of Christ, was not just the reconnection of his spinal cord or his nerves. It was the reconnection spiritually of that man's soul with God. It was the washing away of that man's sins before God. It was placing that person in Christ, spiritually connected to Christ, that gave him eternal life and a new, and a new birth. And that is power. That is power. And so let's not forget that as far as the potency and the power of the gospel is concerned that this is not just some little story that is peddled by people on a Sunday morning. You know, this is something that transforms people's lives. And it doesn't just do that in a theoretical way. Of course, that's important. The theory is important to understand the doctrine of the gospel that we're taking from death to life. But it actually does change the way that people live their life. Salvation of course, has that sense of the penalty of sin being dealt with, but, but the power of sin in an ongoing sense is, is overcome because the gospel of Christ changes folks. And so we have that here. And of course, I mean, Paul knows all about this. If ever there was somebody that knew about the power of the gospel in their life, it was Paul. What does he say to his young friend Timothy? He said, you know, I was formerly a persecutor, a blasphemer, a violent man. You know, he was arrogant, he was proud, felt himself to be so superior to this sect, and he wanted to stamp it out. Then he meets Christ, and his, his life is turned the right way up. And it's the gospel that changes him. It's not a theory, it's the gospel of Christ that transforms his life. Um... You probably know that Angela's uh, grandfather, many, many years ago, was, a, was an elder here in, uh, in Hebron. Uh, it wasn't just quite at the time when uh, it was set up and the name was given. Uh, but I've often thought why people chose the name Hebron. You know, it's almost a little, Heb a little sermon series on its own because there's quite a number of things that could possibly be said about that. But I'm sure one of the things that they had in mind was the fact that Hebron, when you read through the Old Testament, uh, was one of the so-called cities of refuge. You know, so what happened? They didn't have a penal system. They didn't have jails uh, in the Old Testament, but they had cities of refuge. And so if something happened that was accidental, you know, say somebody, somebody was killed in an accident, uh, and the family had it in for the person and were wanting to take revenge, 
they could go to a place where they could be safe. There were only select places, and one of them was a city whose name was Hebron, a city of refuge. There are some interesting stories told about how people abused that system and all the rest of it, but nevertheless, it was a city of safety, a place of strength where they were legally and physically protected from harm. Now, that's what the gospel is. The gospel of Christ is a place of refuge. And this place here that bears that name, that should preach the gospel clearly, people should find it as a place of refuge where they understand the safety that comes from being found in Christ. As Hebrews puts it, you'll remember that verse, we have run to Christ for refuge where we will be safe safe from the consequences of our unforgiven sins, where we can come to him and have that debt paid and find safety in Christ. And so there is the power of God. You, you, you pick this up, actually, when you, when you realize how mixed up the city of Rome was. You know, he talks about Greeks and he talks about barbarians. You know, that's, that's how the Greeks in their sense of superiority referred to everybody else. You know, we're refined, we're intelligent, we're educated, we're sophisticated. Everybody else, a lot of barbarians. You know, Paul picks this up. He says, you know, I'm going to preach this gospel to both groups. I'm going to preach it to the Jews, and I'm going to preach it to the, the non-Jews as well. In fact, there is a good argument to be made that, that one of the main points about writing the whole of the book of Romans is because there was this disparity and disunity between the different groups, you know, and he's trying to bring them together under the power of the gospel. And in our mixed-up society with so many distinguishing groups and interests, here is the thing that can unite. Here is the thing that can bring people together irrespective of the other things that separate them. It's the gospel of Christ. It is that powerful, I think. We'd better move on. Third word I'd like to draw to your attention here is the word righteousness. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, um, I think perhaps more than any other word that's helpful in understanding the gospel this is the word. And, and Paul, if you read through the whole book, you might want to do that, or at least a part of it later on today, you'll see how frequently this word and the concept of righteousness or justice comes up. Now, we know about justice to some extent. You know, the biggest maybe example in our day and age is the whole idea and concept of, of, of racial justice. We look back, and we don't have to look back, we just look, look across our society, and we can see how people are discriminated against because of their race. You know, and we say, that's not justice. It's important that people get, get a sense of what is right here, that we do the right thing, and that there is justice as far as this issue is concerned. So we understand that concept. And we understand, or we should understand, that that very same thing applies as far as God is concerned to us. The importance of justice. Just as we all should be held accountable for, for things that are not right as far as racial attitudes are concerned, 
God will hold us all accountable in this concept of justice or righteousness. You know, Romans chapter 3 says, and he's gone through a whole lot of different categories of people by this point, and he says, you know, there's no one that's righteous, not, not even one person that can be found that's righteous. We read the laws of God, which of course are a, an extension and a reflection of God's character, what God is like. And he says, everyone's fallen short of that. There's not a person who hasn't lied. There's not a person who hasn't stolen. Not, there hasn't been a person who's never coveted. And you know, some people with a sense of pride feel they do better than others, but the very fact they've got pride in that you know, is an issue of itself. And these are all issues of justice before God. Justice that will have to be accounted for. And so he says, in the gospel, this is dealt with. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that's above any other way how we should try and understand the death of Christ. You know, so we this morning looked look to Calvary again. So important that in the preaching of the gospel, that the death of Christ and Calvary is highlighted. And we think about Christ dying upon the cross and, and we say, well, what has that got to do with the righteousness of God? Well, it means this, that the demands of God's justice are being met in Christ. Christ, who is the just one, dies for us who are the unjust ones so that he might bring us to God. And he pays the debt of sin with the shedding of his precious blood so that there is the potential for people like us who are unjust to stand before God right, just, pardoned completely. So it's a wonderful concept uh, of righteousness that we have here. Now the final word, and this is an, a natural part of the argument that I want to, to talk to you about is the word faith. Uh, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, what that really means is this, that the gospel is about faith from beginning to end, front and center, from start to finish. Faith is at the heart of the gospel. It's salvation to everyone who believes, irrespective if you're Jew, if you're Greek, if you're a barbarian, you know, if you're sophisticated, whoever you are at whatever stage, it's belief for everybody. That is the way that a person receives the righteousness of God. And so we, we think about that, and we think about the importance of placing my faith in Christ. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's not about me working my way to heaven and promoting myself and my own efforts. Romans chapter 10 says this, puts it very well. He said, it's not as if you need to climb up to heaven to bring Christ down to you, you know? It's not as if you, you have to burrow down into the abyss to bring Christ up to you. You don't have to do anything like that. What does it say? The Word is near you. It's, it's even in your mouth. That's the word of faith. That if you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's, it's faith that relies wholeheartedly, four square on Christ. 
and on his finished work upon the cross, I have no other argument. I've got no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I believe in that. Faith is at the heart of it all from beginning to end. If you're going to be righteous, as it says here, you'll have to live by faith. It's faith that makes you righteous. So hopefully that gives a bit of clarity. You know, as far as the meaning of the gospel through these key words here, and now we just briefly move on to thinking about some of the other implications. Of course, faith is one of the implications, but there are another couple I just want to um, point out to you that, that Paul highlights as far as his own attitude is concerned, things that touch him, and he says three times over, I am, I am, I am here. So let, let's look at some of them. For He says in verse 15, uh, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Um, you know, it doesn't embarrass me. I don't see myself as being old-fashioned. I don't see myself as being on the wrong side of history. You know, it's not the fact that it doesn't tally with modern values and I have to kind of keep, keep quiet, keep it under wraps. I'm holding my head up high, my chin's up. You know, I'll look somebody in the eye and I'll say, I'm not ashamed, says Paul, of this gospel because I know what it does to people. I know what it can do. It's the method of salvation, and I'm not ashamed of it. I always think of something actually that happened in the playground when I was at high school, as far as this verse was concerned. When some Christian guys, I should have told you this, you know, came to speak to me about the Bible, they knew, you know, my background and my upbringing and what I did. And, you know, I obviously, my, my body language was not particularly comfortable with that conversation round about my buddies at the time. And one of the little guys, James McCord, I can still remember his name, said, what's up, Willie? You embarrassed about this? You embarrassed about his speaking about, about Christ and the gospel here? And that just kind of cut me right to the heart, actually. And, and it made me rethink completely you know, my level of commitment to standing up for Christ. You know, as the old hymn puts it, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord or to defend his cause. You know, at the cross where the burden of my heart rolled away, you know. And it comes to us again with all the pressure that is put on us and all the kind of hostility to the gospel in our day and age. Like Paul I'm proud of this. You know, this is my passion. I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. This is the message that can change people's hearts. And then secondly, he says, I am eager. You see that in verse 15. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. You know, the word preach is used here, the preaching of the gospel. Now, of course, we, we tend to think about that as the public side of it. And, and the, the thing that's important about that is the sense of authority that is carried with it, that this is authoritative. You know, that we're not embarrassed, we're not apologetic, but when people speak from, from the Word of God about the gospel, it carries with it this sense of authority that it comes from God himself. It comes from God himself. It's not, it's not some kind of pompous self-authority, 
but it's, it's from God that this is coming from. And we speak, therefore, as his ambassador, conveying his message. It's not just at a public level, but we should have this eagerness to preach, you know, as we mix with folks, as we have conversations with friends, neighbors, family. It's, again, to be reminded about how this impacted Paul and to take that ourselves. And then the final one is from verse 14 where he says, I am under obligation to preach the gospel. Now, we know what that means, of course, don't we? You know, if somebody gives us a loan or helps us out financially, and then maybe at some later date they they ask us to do something, well, of course you feel a sense of obligation. You know, you're under obligation because of what has been done for you already. Well, Paul's not speaking about financial things, but he realizes two things. He's under obligation to God because in Christ so much has been done for him. And so he does feel this sense of obligation. He looks upon himself as a debtor. And he looks upon himself as under obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians. And we know this, of course, from the story of his travels, preaching the gospel throughout Europe, under obligation to people. I'm not sure if I really get that in the way that I should be getting it. You know, to feel that I'm under obligation to the people I live among. The people that I, I live my life I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world. Well, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's relatively easy to stand up and, and, to, and to just peddle words all the time. And for words not really to impact your own life. And, and I guess it's relatively easy as well to come in every Sunday and sit in seats and listen to a message week by week as well and then go home again without feeling any sense of real personal impact and uh, obligation. But that's where this passage really brings us to. How does it affect me? Does it give a sense of obligation? So I feel that these are, this is one of the key marks of, of a healthy church. It is a challenge. And I trust that in our individual lives, as far as the church, Hebron as a whole, this wonderful message of the, of the gospel of Christ, which is for all, uh, will grip us again. Let's not be ashamed about it. Let's be eager and let us feel our sense of obligation uh, as far as recapturing the wonder of the gospel and, and the implications of, of taking that to others, not just keeping it to ourselves. The marks of a healthy church. Now, shall shall we pray? Lord, thank you for the wonderful gospel of Christ. We pray that it will grip every single heart today. Help us not to just feel, oh yes, we've heard this before. Uh, But as the people of God who have believed it, uh, may the sense of wonder of of, of what the gospel means just really uh, rekindle the flame of love in our hearts as far as serving you and serving others is concerned. 
And Lord, we pray uh, for, for those who might be listening today who, who have never come to personal salvation in Christ, never understood that, never made that something that's individual. Lord, we pray that you will open their hearts and lives to realize the greatness of this message, that, that, that they might have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we commit ourselves to you today as we make our prayers in our Savior's name. Amen.